The following is a resource from the Dwark Hill Study Center. Dwark Hill exists to help Christians take every thought captive to the obedience of Jesus Christ. We hope that you enjoy this lecture. Lord God, we thank you again for... uh, this privilege to be together. Thank you for goodwill and, and their willingness to let us come and use their facility. Pray that you'd bless them and bless their concert tonight. Make it a rich time uh, over in the main sanctuary. Uh, Father, we pray that you'd be with us as we look into your word, as we consider your word tonight, the gift that you've given to us in the revelation of your word through the scriptures. And we pray that you would give us a new love and a passion for your word that you would make us students of it, that you would make us like the blessed man in Psalm 1 who meditates on it day and night, that we might bear fruit in due season. So, Father, use this time to uh, strengthen us in those ways, we ask in Christ's name. Amen. So, let's just start by reviewing for a second where we were last week. Last week, we jumped into the first of the four subjects we're going to cover when we talk about uh, the doctrine of God. And the first is the revelation of God, or how we know anything about him. And if we boil all that down, what we would say is that when we consider the revelation of God, the first thing we're to remember is that it's God's revelation, that it is God, God's self-disclosure, God revealing himself to us. So the initiation in theology, or when we study our Bibles, or when we come to worship, is God coming to us. And, and the importance of this was that we remind ourselves that we are unable, right? We cannot climb to God. God must come to us. And um, I was thinking about this, actually, as I was talking to my students. Um, the illustration just came to my head as I tried to help them understand why that's even important to reckon with, is I, th- I thought about like a radio, or for them I had to use an iPhone, but, but for, uh, for us, maybe a radio, and... If we imagined a black box, a radio had an antenna but had no guts in it, it was just a plastic shell with the dials and so forth, but there was no no receiving equipment in it. It was just a black box that looked like a radio. And, And the radio station was pumping out sound waves, so that sound waves were flowing over the box, right past the antenna. Um, that all the information would be there, but of course the 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 radio would be wholly unable to interpret it, wholly unable to put out music. There would just be these waves washing over this box, and, and there would be no, no music. Um, and, and we remember last week mentioned that we need to reckon with, with the fact that that's by nature what we are. We are rocks. We're dirt, right? And therefore, do not have in and of ourselves the capacity to receive the revelation of God. It's, it's, it's like me talking to a rock. My words, even a word, is more than a rock could comprehend. It's just a black box cannot receive the radio waves. But let's imagine a flip scenario where we have a full radio. It's got all the gizmos, all the receiving equipment in it, right? If there's no radio waves, if, if, this, if the station is not sending out a signal, all the radio can do is static, right? It'll just... That's all you're going to get the whole time because the radio does not, even though it has the equipment in it, it does not have the capacity to reach out and grab the information and bring it back, right? It can only receive. 
And so when we do theology and when we deal with God's revelation, we owe both of these things to God. God has equipped us with the ability to receive the information, and he has given the information, right? So the point here is it's all of God. So when we talk about his revelation, it's his self-disclosure to us. Then we honed in and spent most of our time on the concept of general revelation. We looked at uh, Lane Tipton's definition for that. And just in review, I just mentioned three things, and this will swing us into what we're going to talk tonight uh, about tonight. We said that general revelation, that is the revelation of God in nature, is clear. Remember, the heavens declare the glory of God. The sky shouts forth the praise, right? It's been clearly seen, being understood. All that language we looked at last week. So God's general revelation in nature, he said, conscience and history or providence, his care for us, is clear. Secondly, that revelation, and this is just review, was covenantal. It was covenantal. You remember we talked about that, that, that God is not just pumping out info. Right? He's not just sending out an information signal. That when God reveals himself, it's purpose-driven. It's for relationship. God is establishing and disclosing himself for a relationship with his creature. Right? It's intended for worship. You are worshiping creatures. You were made to worship. And God has given you the self-disclosure of himself that you might worship him. And, and, and on his part, this is a gift to us because he's the only one worthy of worship. Worship anything else, you break. Right? So it's not just God giving this because, oh, God is, though he is in a certain self, egocentric, but, but God-centered. He must be God-centered. But not in a selfish way. God is, is centered on his glory because his glory is the richest thing. And he wants us to be centered on it. He wants us to worship it. You know, when, when Paul says in Philippians 4, set your mind on those things which are good and true and beautiful and praiseworthy, right? All those things, lovely. Right? If I asked you, okay, what are those things? We could say good music, right? Bach you know, or, or any. We could pick all kinds of good music. So set your mind on those things. Don't set your mind on trash, It'll edify you. God made you to set your mind on those things. But if I ask you, what is the ultimate of all those things? It would be God himself. And so Paul would be saying, set your mind on God himself, right? Like, like set your mind on him. Meditate and dwell on these things. It's good for you. It's the, most, it's the best thing you could ever meditate upon. So it's clear and it's covenantal. But then thirdly, we said it's rejected. And this this is the hard reality, is that human beings have thrown blinders on. Remember Calvin said blinders, so we don't look up to the heavens. What does Paul say? We suppress the truth in unrighteousness. We exchange the truth of God for a lie. So I don't want to deal with the truth of God's existence, and then I want to exchange it quickly for the lie, and then we worship the creature rather than the creator. And the importance of this, we said, and this is important for you to know when you deal with non-believers, their problem is not an intellectual one, right? That's the point Paul's making. The problem with the unbelieving man or woman is not an intellectual problem. It's a spiritual problem. It's not that he can't know. It's that he doesn't love. In fact, he hates. The natural mind is hostile toward God, we're told. And therefore, we concluded last week by saying that ultimately then this revelation leaves man without excuse, right? He's without excuse and therefore in need of the gospel, right? Natural revelation serves ultimately only to condemn. 
And the problem is not with the revelation we already said. The problem is with us. To whom more is given, more is required. And as the revelation comes to us, all it serves to do is condemn because, again, we continue and continue and continue to reject it. Let me just hand this. Let me just give you a... Uh, that's okay. Yeah. Um, okay. Now, that brings us then to what we need to talk about tonight. And that is what in theology we call special revelation. And you see in the, uh, in the outline there, I put particular revelation because that's probably a little better to help us understand what we're talking about here. Right? So we take, we take the idea of God's self-disclosure and we can divide it into these two broad categories. On the one hand, that general revelation that is broadcasting, right? It's the radio waves that are broadcasting out over all the earth. As Psalm 19 says, there's nowhere where it's not heard. There's no one who has not received it. There's no corner of the cosmos where somehow the revelation of God's glory has not yet come. So that anyone could go, how could I know? No, it is clearly known that is general. However, it's general not only in its broadcast, it's general in its content. Like, what do we learn from that revelation? Paul said we learn that God exists. Okay. We learn that he's powerful. Our conscience tells us he's just. These are generalities about God. They're truths, but they're generality. And ultimately, there's nothing. You can study the stars as long as you want, and there's nothing they're going to tell you about the atoning death of Jesus Christ. I'm I'm not going to study science, though I may see that. I mean, when I was asking you last week, you had a lot of great thoughts about where we see evidence for God's existence, and it's there. But if I ask you where in creation do you see evidence of the resurrection of Jesus, right? Now you might say, well, I see it in things like the seasons. You know, the leaves fall off. We go through death, if you will, in winter. It's not literally death, but we get it, things kind of die, and then spring back to new life. And we say, yes, I see a picture of the resurrection. Okay, but n- now you're seeing that in, in Christ- through Christian eyes, right? <laughs> the scientists, you're not just going to study that and go, I think a Jewish carpenter died for my sins and rose from the dead. That's what I'm getting from these leaves falling. Uh, so, okay, that's, that's, a, that's a stretch. So therefore, we need particular revelation. We're going to need God to spell it out for us. We're going to need God to disclose to us now, not only his existence, but how we can get right with him, right? I need, now I need to know how can I, a sinner, be made right before a holy God? And this is what we call special, specific, particular revelation. So here's, here's, and again, maybe I would have this on the screen, but I'll, I'll try and say it slowly if you want it. It's not that deep. It's just special revelation, I would say, is the particular revelation of God. So the particular revelation of God regarding specific truths and given to a limited audience. Now, it it doesn't mean it's only allowed to go to a limited audience. It just means not everybody has gotten it. We know this. It's it's a fact. There have been people who have died who have never seen a Bible, never met a missionary, don't even know the name Jesus, never heard it. Right? They will not be held accountable for that. They will not stand before God and God condemn them because they've rejected Jesus. They've never met Jesus. 
their condemnation, as we said last week, is already there. Right? Jesus, what does Jesus say in John 3? I didn't come to condemn the world, but that the world might, through me might be saved. The world's already condemned. Right? Again, if, if we said, going back to the end of our discussion last week, if we say, well, that you can't, that God will not hold the native on the island, our hypothetical native, God will not hold our hypothetical native accountable because he's not been given a chance. Right? That, and that's the logic. Something in our gut, I don't know, but something in our gut goes there. It's, it's, it's almost universal. We all kind of feel that. God, God's not going to judge them. They've never heard about Jesus. Right? He, he won't hold them accountable until they hear. Well, we just need to step back. That, that resonates with us for some reason. I think because we identify with sinners, because we know how, we're, very close to, <laughs> we're very close to these people, and, and so our hearts go there. We identify with them more than we identify with the holiness of God. I remember, just as an aside, I remember being in seminary and, and sitting, it was in Dr. Sproul, R.C. Sproul's class, one of them, very early on. And he's up in front of the thing and he's talking about God's holiness, which if you know anything about Dr. Sproul, that's, that's his wheelhouse, right? He loves, he loves talking about holiness. And, and, uh, but I remember he just, just he said, let, let, in thinking about God's holiness, he said, let, let's get two students up here. And he said, all right, let's, let's have you uh, um, represent Jesus. So you stand over there. And, and he said, let, let's have you represent the most wicked human being we can imagine. Who do we think it is? And of course, I don't know why. Adolf Hitler is just the guy. Like we all, there's, there's been a lot of very wicked people, but Hitler is the guy. It's just, we all go there. And we all said Hitler. He said, all right, let's put Hitler over there and Jesus over there. Now he said, let's, let's, let's take you know, Billy Graham. Let's take, pick the guy. You just think, man, when I think of godliness, I think of this guy, this woman, right? Whoever it is. And uh, he said, all right, let's move him on the spectrum, you know? You know, is he here? Is he in the middle? Is he kind of right between Jesus and, and you know, Hitler? And, and of course, no, right? We keep moving him. And well, what do you think about here? And finally, we had him like on Hitler's shoulders, right? That the, the best human being, the, the most godly person in comparison with the holiness of God basically is Hitler. <laughs> you, can't, you can't distinguish from that perspective. And so our hearts, our hearts tend to identify there. And so I think that's why in our gut we just can't, our, our thought is, no, but they can't, they can't be judged. And, uh, and I'm not saying it's easy. We should never, never should the idea of God's judgment be easy. But if we step back just for a moment from that thinking, if we said, well, God, won't hold, God will not hold them accountable until they've at least had a chance to hear, we would realize then it would be the end of world missions, right? We, there would, we, would, we would expect that in the Bible he would never tell us to go tell people. Like, what would be the point? Because once you tell them, now you've placed them in a position of condemnation. Now you've told them, oh, why'd you tell them? Because now they're going, I'm not so sure, now they're going to hell. You know, had you not said anything, God would not hold them accountable for that. And you realize quickly, oh, that, yeah, that can't be right. Because the scriptures tell me to go, right? Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. But how will they, or, or all who call on the name of the Lord will be saved, but how will they call on him in whom they not believed? And how will they believe in the one of whom they've never heard? And how are they going to hear unless someone preaches? So he just kind of works that down. Like, you've got to preach it or else they'll never call on the name of the one. Because they're in trouble, right? They're in trouble. They're under judgment already. They need the gospel. We all need the gospel. We need that specific and particular revelation. And God works through that. He doesn't need the missionary, but he works through the missionary. He doesn't need the pastor, but he works through the pastor. 
Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. We need people declaring the word of God. It's not Bill Spanger that has the power. It's the word of God that has the power. And my job is to broadcast it. My job is to say it. We need special revelation. Okay, so what do I have here? Let, let's think, and I asked you, I asked you last week, let's, let's think through it again. Um, this is crowd participation time. Um, let's just think through some examples of special revelation. Now, I've given you, and we mentioned last week, so on your outline, number one and number two are the biggies, right? Jesus. Jesus is special revelation. You learn things about God when you look at Jesus that you could never know by looking at the stars or at the bumblebee or the waterfall. You just couldn't do it. You can learn some things about God there. You could never learn what you learn when you look at Jesus. We'll talk about him in a second. And clearly the Bible is the truth of Christ now put into written form with very particular details, right? So conscience is general revelation that says, remember, don't, don't, right? That's how your conscience teaches you. You're going to steal the cookie from the cookie jar when you're little and your conscience goes, and you go, ah, maybe you do it anyway. And then your conscience goes, oh, you. Right? It doesn't say, thou shalt not. It just goes, you loser. And you feel that in your gut. And when you do something positive, your conscience says, all right. And you feel good. It doesn't quite tell you what you did right. It just gives you a sense that you were right. But then you get the Bible and it says, thou shalt not kill. Like really specific. Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. But now let's think within the Bible because we'll come back to those, but let's just, let's just brainstorm some, what are some other forms that maybe we see examples of in the Bible of special revelation, of God giving particular revelation? I don't need examples of, of what the revelation was, but what was the form that the revelation came in? Can you think of any forms of special revelation in the Bible? What? Dreams, yeah, dreams. Dreams, well, let's think of a dream that's a, a moment of special revelation. Joseph. Joseph gets that dream, right? Yeah, okay, right. He, he's interpreting dreams. So even, even uh, uh, Pharaoh gets a dream that's revelatory from God, right? Amazing. God gives Pharaoh a dream, you know, but this dream is used by Joseph. It's used to bless Joseph. Or Joseph gets the dream earlier in his life. I saw the stars bow before me. The sheaves all bowed before me, right? He gets a revelatory dream and it almost gets him killed. <laughs> hey, brothers, you know, <laughs> and, they're, and they're saying, oh, oh, we're going to bow before you, Joseph. And they try to kill him. But when those brothers bow before him years later, it's just like, what? like it all comes rushing back. All right, dreams. Yeah, so there's revelatory dreams. Um, not all dreams are this, but there were revelatory dreams. Can we think of another example of special revelation? Writing on the wall. Oh, okay. Yeah, there's a good one. There's a unique one. Yeah, writing on the wall. Good. How about another one? Other forms. Okay. The burning bush. Now what happens? How does the revelation come at the burning bush? What category of revelation? What form does that? Obviously it's unique in the sense that it's a burning bush, but it comes in the form of direct speech, right? God encounters Moses and just speaks to him. That's incredible. Not through a prophet, right? Not even writing on a wall. Moses. Take off your shoes. Whoa. And we get, of course, other examples of direct speech. You know, Moses on top of Mount Sinai. And God is speaking directly to him, saying, hey, get this down. 
here's, here's the laws I'm telling you directly. Okay, so direct speech. We see examples of that in the scriptures. What would be some other examples? of Prophecy. Yeah, the prophets, where now it is indirect, but it is specific revelation, right? What does the prophet say? Thus saith the Lord, or hear the word of the Lord, and the Lord speaks through the prophets. So it's indirect, but it's God's revelation. Okay, any others? Can you think of any others? Angel, angelic visitation, right? Same thing. Instead of a prophet this time, now we have the, a heavenly messenger. The word angel means messenger. And so a heavenly messenger comes and brings a message to Mary, let's say, or to the shepherds, right? And it's a revelation from God specific. Any others? Well, Jesus, I would say, yeah, Jesus is the highlight. Jesus is the ultimate in that, in that he is the God-man. He is God in the flesh. And so his humanity is the fullness of special. Is that what you mean? Well, in the Old Testament, angels. Oh, okay, I see. Yeah, so we might call them like theophanies, uh, where God appears, or maybe even Christ appears there in the form of, let's say, the angel of the Lord in the wrestling with Jacob. Um, the three men who come and visit Abraham, um, you know, um, Melchizedek, you know, the priest of Melchizedek, uh, where you get these appearances in these ways. And if, if indeed, and, and clearly those figures are so tied with, with, the, uh, with the character of God that it's, it is God speaking. So, yeah. So if, in that way, it would almost be direct speech. Um, I'm also thinking of visions, which are like dreams, but they're not quite dreams. Right? They enter into this reality. The whole book of Revelation is, is a vision. Uh, Ezekiel gets the vision of the dry bones. Daniel gets visions. He sees, you know. So, um, all, right. So all, all right. So all these are examples of special revelation. Very specific, sometimes difficult to understand, but very specific revelation from God. Now, let's, let's jump in. Um, let's start first with Jesus. And you see I have there, and we'll talk about this, again, Lord willing, in the winter, I'll be doing the class on Christ in the Old Testament, and we'll come back to this when we get to the prophets. Um, we'll touch on this again. Uh, but let's, let's think about Jesus. If we're going to, we, within systematic theology, there's a whole section just on Christ. Of course, it's called Christology. This is theology proper. Christology is a study of Christ. Um, so this, in many ways, this fits there, but since we're not doing that, it's worth talking about here. Because you, would, you wouldn't want in to, my, in my high school class, I skip over it because I say in a, in a couple months we're going to spend all this time on Christ. But since we're not doing that, we would, we would really uh, be, be negligent if we did not mention the revelation of God that we have in Christ. He is the fullest and clearest and ultimate revelation of God. He is how we know what God is like. He's how we know who God is. I say this somewhere in, I think it's in the Revelation class, I just remember saying it this past winter, that, and, and I've, I'm, this is not original to me, I've just been moved by so many teachers who have challenged me on this, that one of the mistakes we often make as Christians, especially when we're doing apologetics or something like this, and we want to look for evidences. We're trying to deal with, let's say, Jehovah's Witness. And we want to look for evidences of the deity of Jesus Christ, right? The fact that he is God. If I, and if I asked you right now, I said, all right, we're going to give you a couple minutes. Go ahead and write down what are the evidences of Jesus being God. You know, we'd say things like, oh, his miracles, right? We go right to the miracles and the power and all these kinds of things. The problem is 
the whole process is flawed. Because if I say to you, go find evidence in the scriptures of Jesus being God, it presupposes something. It's presupposing that you know what God is like. And you can find evidence. <laughs> right? It's like, what, how do you know what God is like? Now, granted, while well, you say, I look at the stars, I know he's very powerful. And that, that would be true. You do have some idea of what God is like. But it's only in Christ that we learn what God is like. Right? Because if I said, if I said, what do I learn about God in Jesus? Again, if I, what are the evidences? We might go to the things where he does power. For some reason, that's like power. We look for signs of power because God is all powerful. But would we go first to the cross? Would we go right to the cross and say, that's my God. Look at him there dying for me. Like that concept of God just that doesn't click. We don't know that. No, I think of God, I think of power. And then when Jesus is doing on the cross, that's his humanity. No, but that's God as man. Like looking at the cross, I learn what my God is like and who he is in a way I just could never have learned, even in the Old Testament. I just could not have known it. I see that God is a lover of his people. I see that God provides bread from heaven, water out of rocks. He defeats their enemy. He brings them back out of exile. What a gracious, loving God he is. Oh, you have no idea. Until you see him come in your flesh, be beaten by his own creatures, spit on, and hung on the cross in order to redeem them. Not just an amazing man. God, the creator of the world, the one in whom and through whom everything was made, did that. That's who's on that cross. You had no idea what God was like until you saw that. So the idea of looking for evidence of Jesus, it's not that it's bad. It's not that it's bad, but it does. It's very hard for me to do that with a Jehovah's Witness. We have two radically different ideas of what God is like. The Jehovah's Witness just says, I, what I have in the Old Testament isn't, that's it. That's Yahweh, and we're Jehovah, and we're Jehovah's Witnesses, and I know what God is like. And so they look and say, I don't see the evidences, or I don't know. Right? They've, already, they've already presupposed what God is. And, and we, we want to come and say, no, Jesus is himself the revelation of God. You have, and I told this to a Jehovah's Witness. A very nice older couple came to my house, and I always avoid. I always try to get out of it. I send Christine out there as a sacrificial lamb, you know, anything to try to get out of talking to these folks. But they caught me. They caught me one time, and I couldn't. And they were very, very nice people. And so they came back again. And, and then I started a little conversation with them. They, they were just very nice. And I remember at one time, I said to the one woman, she's trying to tell me, well, why did you take Jehovah out of the, you know, the, the Christians took Jehovah out of the Old Testament. And she's showing me this thing on her iPad about how... Christians have taken Jehovah out. We've denied Jehovah. And I just, I couldn't handle it anymore. And I, I, I said, ma'am, no, no disrespect, but I, I got to be honest with you. I said, I just believe that Christianity and, and we have a infinitely higher view of Jehovah than you have. And that, the iPad went down. <laughs> the, uh, you know, uh, the, the very sweet woman looked like she could do bodily harm to me. Um, <laughs> 
And I said, ma'am, I just, I, just, I just, we have such an infinitely higher view of Jehovah. I said, because you're talking to me about this idea that Jesus is the ransom, you know, and the ransom for us, and, and he delivers us. And I said, but you believe that Jesus, this ransom that we have, is done by a great guy. A great guy. And I owe a ton to this great guy. I said, but we believe it's Jehovah. Like the one on that cross doing that for me? is Jehovah himself. And therefore, in glory and for all eternity, I have only Jehovah to thank and to praise, period. Now, she never heard that argument. I had never even thought of that argument. I just couldn't handle her going on anymore about Jehovah and Jehovah. We took Jehovah out of the Bible. I'm like, enough. We have the ultimate view of Jehovah because he has given himself for us. He has not sent, he has not delegated that. Right? He himself has come to do it. So, of course, just a few things about this. John 14, 9, Jesus says to Philip, right? He says, oh, Philip says, oh, just show us the Father. And you know what Jesus says. Oh, Philip, how long have I been with you? If you've seen me, you have seen the Father. Do you remember Moses there on the mountain? Show me your glory. And God said, I cannot. You'll die. But John says, we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father. And Jesus says to Philip, Philip wants the same thing Moses wants, just show us the Father. And then Jesus says, look at me. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. There's no God behind Jesus. It's not like, okay, Jesus is great, but can we see? You know, I just like to see where's the, real, like, where's the ultimate, where's the final, where's the, where's the reality? Because you're hiding, I see this humanity, but where's God? And Jesus says, no, it doesn't work that way. If you've seen me, this is what God looks like. And I'm not talking about the length of his hair and the color of his eyes, right? But everything you see Jesus do, when Jesus weeps over Jerusalem and weeps over Lazarus, like you've got to figure that into your doctrine of God, right? It's not, oh, Jesus is just having a rough day. Look, he's traveling around with these mangy disciples and it finally just broke. He broke and just he couldn't contain it and he was, you know, misty-eyed at Lazarus' grave. No, that's God. That's God in our flesh, weeping over the death of Lazarus and over the consequences of sin. It's Jesus who's going to judge Jerusalem. He's going to judge Jerusalem. In 40 years, the Romans are going to come in and it's going to be as nasty as you can imagine any war being. And that's going to be the hand of God's judgment. And here is God weeping and saying, Oh, Jerusalem, how I would have gathered you under my wing like a hen gathers her chicks under her wing, but you would not. You did not know the day of your visitation. You didn't know that God is coming into your presence. And he weeps for the very ones he's going to judge. Like, you've got to, you, show me, but Jesus, that, I see you weeping, but what, what's God doing? And Jesus says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. This is the heart of the Father, incarnated and manifested. Colossians 1, 19 Colossians 1.19, I probably should have written these down too, but Colossians 1.19 and Colossians 2.9, in him, God was pleased to have the fullness dwell in him. Colossians 1.19 and then 2.9, the fullness of the Godhead. Think about that. The fullness of the Godhead dwells in him in bodily form. You want to see God? Look at Jesus. And then Hebrews 1, 1 and 2. And this is really thinking about Jesus as the prophet. Uh, uh, Hebrews, 
Hebrews 1. God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in times past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the worlds, who being the radiance of his glory, the express image of his person. Right? He is the brightness or the radiance of the glory of God, right? Moses, can I see your glory? No. Look at Jesus. He is the radiance of his glory, the express image of his person, upholding all things by the word of his power. I mean, so, so here we have Jesus. It, Jesus is the special revelation. All right? So, all right, I have, he's the, pro, so what I have in our outline there is he's the prophet. And I'll skip over relating him to Old Testament prophets. I'll just go to say this. Jesus asked his disciples, hey guys, this is, he's halfway through his ministry here with them. They have three years together. He's halfway, right? In Mark's gospel, it's dead center. It's the turning point of his whole gospel. Mark 1 through 8, and then you have this moment, and then 8 through 16. It's dead center. Halfway through, he gets his disciples. He says, he says hey guys, it's just us now. Cool, a little quiet time. He says, hey, who are men? You hear that your, your ears are to the ground out there. What's the word on the street? Who, who are men saying that I am? And Peter says, they say, you're a prophet. You are Elijah. Now, they, they're not saying we think he is literally Elijah. They're saying he, he's, like, he's an Elijah figure, or he's a Jeremiah figure, or he's a John the Baptist figure, right? They're all saying a prophet. And then he asks, well, who do you say that I am? And Peter says, I think you're the king. Right? They're, they're look, they see through the fact that he's a prophet to the Christ. He's the king. And of course, Jesus says, well done. Flesh and blood has not revealed this to you. But there's a reason why everybody thinks he's a prophet. And he is a prophet. He's just much more than a prophet. But he's the ultimate prophet. He's the culmination of all the Old Testament prophets. Right? He's the one who comes and does what prophets do. They travel around and they teach. And they don't just teach. They declare the word of the Lord. And they don't just declare the word of the Lord. They call you to repent. When you are in Old Testament Israel and the prophet comes wandering into town, you're not like, oh, a word from the Lord. You're like, oh, no. Because the prophet was going to come in and say, you had better repent or this city's going. Right? He, was, he was rarely coming to give you old pat on the back. Well done, boys. He was coming because you have spiraled into unbelievable idolatry and judgment was coming. And when Jesus comes into town, the same thing is true. He's calling people to repent, right? Repent and to trust him. John the Baptist before him, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. And so he comes in with that message like the prophet. But the, the prophet also in the Old Testament, the prophet also promised that on the other side of repentance, there would be restoration. It might be bad for a while, but God will bring you back. And of course, Jesus proclaims this message ultimately. And finally, uh, so Jesus is the great prophet. In fact, he's the ultimate prophet because imagine, right? All the Old Testament prophets, they say things. We already talked about this. They say things like, thus saith the Lord, or hear the word of the Lord. And then Jesus comes into town and he's on the mountain there in, in Matthew chapter five and six. And he starts saying things like, you've heard it said, but I say to you, 
And you're like, what? Who, that, that, this isn't a normal problem. Like, prophets don't do that. Prophets don't say, I know this is what people have been telling you. Right? This is what you, all the people of God are saying, but I tell you something. I, no, it's more than that or it's different than that. And Jesus starts dropping his own authority. He doesn't say, hey, here's God's word. He says, I tell you. And remember, at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, when it's all over in, in, um, in Matthew chapter 7, the end of Matthew chapter 7, they come down from the mountain and they say, whoa, he taught like one having authority. That's what blows them away about the whole thing. He spoke like no prophet we've ever heard. But they don't know. They don't know who he is at that point. So Jesus is the ultimate prophet. But even more than that, and this brings us to point B under number one, what makes him the ultimate prophet is he's not just the prophet, he's the prophecy. He's not just the messenger, he's the message. He's what it's all about. Again, John 1, 1, in the beginning was the word. And you go, okay, all right, yeah, I get it. God said, let there be. And then it says, and the word was with God. Okay. And the word was God. Like now the word, and then it says, and through him, all things were made that were made. And you're like, wait, him? What? I thought we were talking about a word. Now we know, we know because we know this verse, but we, we know it. We become so comfortable with it. We're not kind of shocked by it. <laughs> the word is a person. The word is the second person of the Trinity. Right? He is the, he's the message. He, God speaks. The Father speaks. We're going to talk about this in a second. We talk about the, the Bible. The Father speaks and the Son is the message. Right? The Father speaks, if you will, the Son. It's all about the Son. Remember the, the winter class. I'll begin with this passage in John chapter 5. When Jesus says to those who are trying to provoke him, and I think we talked about this maybe week one, I can't remember, but when he says, hey, you guys, you guys think you believe Moses? You don't believe Moses. He says, if you believe Moses, you would believe in me because Moses wrote about me. Really? Do you read Moses that way? Do you read the Pentateuch, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, and go, Jesus, 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 Jesus. Oh, this is all about Jesus. We're just not prone to do that. So it's about laws, it's about Adam and Eve, it's about Israel coming out of the Exodus, it's the flitting of the Red Sea. And Jesus goes, me, me. Moses wrote about me. That's all about me. So Jesus is the message. He's, he is the word himself. And I love what, how the apostle Paul says it to the Corinthians when he says, I have endeavored to preach nothing to you but Christ and him crucified. There's no other message. The message is Jesus. The message is Christ and him crucified and raised from the dead. He is, so he is the ultimate special revelation. Okay, but that's a whole nother course and one day we'll, we'll do that. But in the winter, we will look at, we'll look at that Old Testament and we're gonna talk about that one more time in here when we look at the structure of the Bible. We're gonna, we'll spend 10 weeks on, on the Old Testament that way. Okay, now let's go to number two, the Bible. Let's go to the Bible because um, we want to think about now the special revelation of God as it's been given to us in writing and in this book form. So let's make our way through here. First, the Bible, A, the nature of the Bible. And here, I just want us to think for a second about what type of book is this thing, the Bible? Like, what is your Bible? We know it's a book, 
but it's a collection of books. We know it's a collection of 66 books. Uh, in many ways, it's a very strange book because it's, a, it's just this gathering together of so many different genres and types of literature. Unfortunately, you hear, and I don't know, especially when you talk to kids, uh, youth groups and these kinds of things can get a little, well, we start talking about the book like things like it's the instruction manual. Um, it, and as if, as if the Bible, what the Bible really is, is an instruction manual for life, and it is, it is a, like a moral guidebook and handbook. Now, I don't want to discount these things as if they're completely untrue, but I don't know if it's helpful. I don't know if it's helpful. This is not a moral handbook. If it's an instruction guide, it is the most confusing instruction guide ever been given in the history of the world. Because I don't, when's the last time you got an instruction guide in poetry? Like you just opened up something you got to put together for Christmas for your kids, and it was a big poem. And it's like figure that out, you know, just just you know, it's like a poem, and you're just I don't know what to do with this. Um, that's in there, like poetry's in there, um, and that's part of this. Is there instruction in the Bible? Absolutely, but it's not a moral handbook. It's not a rule book in that sense. Also, it's not a theological textbook. Again, because if it is, it's a terrible one. Right? We could, we, God could have written a much clearer theology book. Right? I mean, we're, we're trying to get in there and figure out the doctrines of the faith in there, but they're not just laid out systematically. Like, okay, open up to the index. Where's the stuff on Trinity? Okay, I mean, let me go to this, and here's a little paragraph on Trinity. I'm, I'm trying to work it out out of something said in the Old Testament, and then Jesus saying, baptize in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Ghost, and Jesus saying, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father, for the fire and I are one. Yeah, but then he also says, but the Father's greater than I. And you're like, wait, what? And we got to work it out. And he's like, go ahead, work it out. It's not a, theo- a theology textbook. Of course, some people say it's God's love letter to us. And every time I hear that, I think to myself, have you read the book of Amos or Hosea? Like, it's like, I'm going to tear you limb from limb. I'm going I'm to utterly destroy you. There'll be nothing left of you when I'm done. I mean, you just think to yourself, I didn't know God could talk like this. It seems so unholy. It it is pretty vicious. If this is a love letter, it's a really strange one. Now, of course, we don't want to discount it because, of course, it tells us about the love of God. But I've got to figure those things in there, too. So I guess I just want us to think about it because often we kind of just simplify the Bible down into these things. And I'm just saying, and you know it already, none of these really, of course, get it done. But they're all true. They're all touching onto something. What is the Bible? The Bible is our covenantal canon. Now, canon there doesn't mean, you know, canon, canon here means standard. The canon of the Bible means standard or rule. Like a ruler is a standard. How do I know what a foot is? Because I have this ruler. It tells me, and I measure things by that rule, by that standard. The Bible is that for us. It is our covenantal canon, or our covenantal standard, or our covenantal charter. It is the standard that God has given us for as a rule by which we're to judge ourselves by and and our beliefs by and our actions by. It's all of those things for us in our faith and in our practice. That's what the Bible is. The goal of the Bible, and, and, and again, imagine the Bible being a rule book. How big would it have to be, like, to deal with all the problems? all the issues we have to face. That's not what the Bible's after. The Bible's not after giving, it's not an answer book. 
The Bible is given to shape people. It's given to make us into new creatures. It's made, it's made and given to us to shape us into the image of Jesus Christ over time. Again, not an answer book. And that's why the Bible does this by engaging the whole person. Because again, if it was a theology book, it would just be, it'd be in, it'd be in topics. If it was a moral handbook, it'd be, again, it'd be in, in topics. If it, if it was a love letter, it'd be a lot more sappy. But instead, it's poetry, prayers, wisdom literature, proverbs, with all kinds of great moral guidance and guidance for life. It's laments, right? It's vision. I mean, the book of Revelation, right? We spent a whole class on that, right? That's, I, like, that just rips the world open and says, what do you think about this idea? Like, this is what the world really is like. And you're like, I never thought about it that way. It's that. It's letters. Think about it. The Bible, the New Testament is made up of letters. Like Paul sat down and penned a letter to the church at Ephesus because there was an issue there that needed to be dealt with. And that's Bible. Like that's our Bible. But it was a letter one day Paul thought, I got to write a letter to those guys and tell them something. Or my goodness, we have Corinthians who are committing incest and, and who are suing one another and who are getting drunk at the Lord's Supper. I got to deal with this. Somebody, give, me, give me a pen. And he writes it down. Bible. It's in our Bible. It's a letter to a real church that had a real issue, and Paul wrote it, and it's in, our, it's, it's, it's in there. So we get letters, we get gospels, which are not the same as biographies, right? But they're telling, they're telling the story of Jesus to a particular audience. Mark is writing, we believe, to the church at Rome. Luke, we know, is writing to some guy named Theophilus. We're not sure who that is, probably not even his real name. Maybe people have thought he's a, he's a Roman leader of some sort, maybe a governor or something like that, who has become a Christian, and Luke doesn't want to give up his name. Theophilus means lover of God. And he writes, Luke, he writes the gospel to him, and he explains why at the beginning of the gospel. He says, I'm writing this to you so that you might know with certainty the things that have taken place. Because I've talked to eyewitnesses, and I want to let you know, and I want to confirm to you the truth of the things you've learned and believed. So he's writing to a guy named Theophilus, and, and, and that, that's in there. You get prophets and you get history. All of these things come together and they, they get us from every different way. They're affecting right brain, left brain. They're affecting us in all of our being to make us people and to make us a church that then can improvise. Right? Because that, the Bible is not going to tell me how to deal with so many situations. But that's not what the Bible's trying to do. The Bible is trying to make me a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's getting me to look at the Lord Jesus Christ and shape me so that when I am faced with something, right, you know the old image, when you bump me, Bible will come out. Jesus will come out because I've saturated myself. I've let the scriptures work on me in the poetry and in the prayers, in the praise and in the laments by the fear of the prophets and by the, the letters that were written in certain situations that maybe I can apply myself to, by the visions of Revelation and Ezekiel. All of those things have been working on me so that now when I'm faced with a situation, by the aid of the Holy Spirit and with the Word of God, I can improvise in a way that's consistent with being a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what the Bible's doing. It's, it's coming and engaging us as members of the new covenant, as members of Jesus Christ and of his church, with all these genres and perspectives coming and shaping us. So that's the kind of book we're dealing with here. It's not a simple book. It's a complex and dynamic book.
nature of the Bible, what kind of book is it? Now, let's just think quickly about the structure of the Bible, um, which, again, we know we've got the book into the Bible is, is brought into different uh, um, groups and clusters of books, history and wisdom and prophecy and so forth. But I want to zoom out a little bit from that and go to, again, something we know, um, but, but uh, just reflect on it. And that is the Bible, of course, is divided into Old and New Testament. I'm not breaking news here, but the Bible is in Old and New Testament, but of course it's one unit. And the, this unit between Old and New Testament is really important for, for us to understand in the sense that it's an organic unity, that the New Testament grows out of uh, the Old Testament and then fulfills the Old Testament. And it's important for us to read the Bible that way because oftentimes we don't know what to do with the Old Testament. You sit down and do your devotions. We go to like John, which is great. Go to John. I'm not, I'm not saying bad to go to John. Go to John. Go to Ephesians. That's great. You know, but, but we don't often go to Numbers or Second Kings. Maybe we do. Maybe we do. Great. Because sometimes we don't know what to do with the Old Testament. Um, and we don't see how it's driving us to the new. Uh, and so I just want to encourage you and to think about that with regard to the structure of the book. And uh, the first thing I have there is that the structure of the Bible is one of progressive revelation. That Jesus doesn't just pop out of nowhere, but Jesus comes at what, what we looked at uh, last week, I think, uh, Galatians 4.4, 4, the fullness of time. Or Ephesians 1 verse 10, you know, uh, in the dispensation of the fullness of the times, right? So that the idea there that Paul is drawing on in both those passages is like, you know, filling up a cup to the place of utter fullness and then Jesus. Or there's this something that grows to perfect maturity, Jesus. It's not just you get, you know, you get a bunch of Old Testament stories and they're kind of interesting and some of them we don't know what to do with it and there's a lot of killing and some crazy stuff and names we can't pronounce. Okay, but yeah, Jesus. No, it's Jesus. Jesus comes out of all that. All of that is meant for you and me to then look at Jesus and go, okay, yeah. Right? It's, it's meant to, it was there, it is there to train us so that the Old Testament is like written to children. Not literally, I don't mean that, but like to a, to a child church. Right? Paul will sometimes call it our, our schoolmaster. It's there to train us and to teach us. And so we get pictures, right? We get all kinds of pictures, right? We get a picture of final judgment, but it's a flood and it's an ark. And, and you get into this ark, which is the, the, the faithful work of one servant, uh, Noah, whose name means giver of rest. And we all get in his work and we sail through the judgment into a new creation, does that, does, that, does that story sound familiar to you? That's the Bible. Right? That, that's the whole story. And we see it. We, we grew up with that on felt boards. Those of us who are really old, you know, before, before smart boards, it was felt boards. And you had the little felt board things of the ark, you know, stuck up there in the animals. And, and, but, that, but there's the story of the Bible. You know, and it's a ram and, 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 and Abraham's about to sacrifice his son. And the Lord says, no, don't, you don't have to sacrifice your only son. And there caught in the thicket is a, is a ram with his horns. And, and the ram is allowed to replace Isaac. 
And, and in this, we see and we get a picture. It's like for little children. Do you see this? It's like it's, I, I've often described to my students the, the Old Testament almost being like when, or those of you who have done nursery, or what, if you can remember back to when you were little sitting in nursery or little Sunday schools, you know, or even in elementary school and the teacher reading the book and, and says, you know, and then, and then this happened. And, and then he turns the book around with the picture. And they go, do you see that? Do you see children? Do you see how that happened? Do you see how he did that? And then they turn around, they, there's just a little bit of text and then big pictures and the children see it and they're hearing what you say and they're looking at the pictures. And that's basically the Old Testament. Do you see that, children? Do you see that, how Abraham didn't have to sacrifice his only son? Do you see that? How God gave a substitute to take the place for him? You know, preparing us for the day when God will say, I'll give up my only son, Abraham, so that you don't have to give up yours, right? So that you don't have to die. Do you see that? And then all these stories of the Old Testament and all the laws and, and in ways and beyond. So again, as I say, we'll do the class on this. We'll kind, of, we'll kind of jog through the Old Testament in 10 weeks and pick a bunch of those stories and kind of look at them in order, not just to know our Old Testament better, but in order to see Christ better, in order to understand the richness of Jesus Christ because there's an organic unity there. The Old Testament gradually developing progressive revelation one story building on another, on another, on another, as we move through the flow of the Old Testament, so that, boom, and we've entitled uh, um, that class, uh, Behold the Lamb. And I took that from that moment where John the Baptist is baptizing in the Jordan River, and he's baptizing him, he's saying, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand, and then he looks up, and here comes his cousin Jesus, and he just says, Behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. And I love that moment. It's one of my favorite moments in the Bible because I hear all, I love that hymn, Come Thou Long Expected Jesus. I love singing that when we get to Advent because to me that is the cry, that's the prayer, that's the song of the whole Old Testament. Come, you know, come Thou Long Expected fulfillment to these promises you're giving us. You're giving us this promise and then you're building on it with the next one. You're building on it and you're building on it. Come, thou long expected promise. And then here comes Jesus and it's like John is saying, behold, the Lamb of God. That take, there he is. There's everything we've been waiting for. Right? He sees the fulfillment of that. So call, titled the class that behold the Lamb. So it's all moving that way. Okay, so, so it's progressive Revelation, uh, And the relationship of then the Old and New Testament is one, and that's the second thing I have on the outline, uh, one of anticipation and then fulfillment. So it's like, it's like the Old Testament is, again, doing that very thing, right? Leading us in anticipating and anticipating and anticipating. You know, imagine if I, if, if in music I said, da, 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 da. And everything in you just wants to go, da. You know, you're like, no, finish. If I, if I just stopped it, da, 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 da. Good night, everybody. You know, you'd be like, no, but da. Yeah, it just feels so good to hear that da, to bring it home. And, and it's like that, and the whole Old Testament is just building up that anticipation until, boom, Christ uh, is there for us. So it's that anticipation, shadows and types and pointing forwards, uh, a, a problem that just doesn't seem to be resolved. How can God love a people like this? Like you ever read the Old Testament and think that? Wait, how can he keep forgiving them? Like doesn't at some point you just got to wipe them out? Like at some point it's just enough, God's holy and, and there's this tension 
and then Jesus, and you say, oh, that's how he's going to do it. So that relationship of anticipation and fulfillment is the relationship of Old and New Testament. And then thirdly, I have that it's Christological, which that's the point I'm making, that it's all, it's all him, it's all Christological. So you can ask yourself this question, am I reading the Bible right? And you know you will because you're making much of Jesus. You're understanding him better. You're not just understanding doctrines. You're not just finding out ways you should live. Those all flow. It's the fruit. That's all fruit, right? The blessed man, someone, is the one who meditates on his law, word, who meditates on his word day and night. He will be like a tree, bless you, planted by streams of living water. Yes, right? the living water, okay, Christ, right? The one who, who meditates on the word of God will be like a tree planted by streams of living water that bears its fruit in season. So doctrinal understanding, moral living, like we don't go after that first. We go after drinking from the water. We root ourselves there. We, we meditate on the word of God. And what will come out if we give our lives to that will be fruit of doctrinal understanding. We're going to know him better, right? And moral living. We're going to want to live better. We're going to understand how to live as Christ, right? Because we, we're drinking and drinking from that river. So it's Christological. So are you reading the scriptures right? Well, then you and I will know in as much as we're growing in our relationship with Christ um, and seeing the fruit worked out. Okay, C, the inspiration of the Bible. This is a technical theological term um, because, and I want to uh, highlight it, and I want to highlight that it's a theological term because when we think about the, when I say inspiration, when we think of inspiration, we think of that, you're sort of my motivation, and that's not what we mean. So all that to say, it's not that, okay? Um, when we talk about inspiration, we're, it's the word spirit. The spear in there is sp- like drawn from spirit, all right? And so it's almost like the scriptures are inspirited. The spirit of God inhabits the word. The word for spirit is pneuma. You know, we get it like a pneumatic air gun. Right? My mechanic guys in here are like, all right, enough of this Chicago stuff. Let's talk air tools. All right. <laughs> Eric and I we talk air tools, pneumatic, a pneumatic wrench, all right? Pneumatic is the Greek word. Pneuma is the Greek word for spirit or breath or air, right? So a pneumatic gun is air powered, an air powered wrench. And that Numa is the word here. The, so the, I'm saying here, I'm not even, I skipped over the verse. Uh, the, a passage that you all know well, right? Uh, 2 Timothy 3.16. All scripture is getting out. This is the New King James. Who has something else? We can read it too. Okay, hold on. I'll read New King James. Read ESV. All scripture is given by inspiration. So there, the New King James is just using the theological word. Okay, all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God or child of God, person of God, may be complete and thoroughly equipped for every good work. Does the ESV use inspiration, Wally? No. Okay, what's it say? All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching. Right. So it's breathed out, pneuma, pneuma. Right, that pneumatic, it's breathed, it's the air, it's the breath of God. And so, so a lot of your translations will keep that because we use the word inspiration, it's the technical term, but it's almost better to just say it that way. It's God breathed. 
Michael Horton, uh, professor at Westminster Theological West, says that he wishes the word would not be inspiration, but expiration. But that just gives all kinds of other wrong connotations, right? The expiration of scripture, like, you know, like the, the milk date on your thing. It's like no good anymore. It's expired. But, but he's like, yeah, but that's actually the word, right? It's expired. So when we think about expiration, it's breathed out, right? So sometimes they use that for death. He's expired, breathed out, you know, ex breath. But he's right that the, the, it would actually be a better term for the word, for the, the doctrine, that the, the scriptures are expired. It's, it's the spirit breathed out by the Father that we get in the word of God. The point of this, the word inspiration, the point is that the Bible is the word of God. It is the breath of God. It's God's word. So when we talk about the Bible being the word of God, we're, we're leaning on that technical term, inspiration. So just think about this for a second there. So 2 Timothy 3.16, it's God-breathed. It's a Trinitarian work, and Kev's going to bring it next week and the week after. You're going to get a lot of the training. It's going to be great because he's, he's going to open your eyes to help, help you open your eyes to the, the underlying reality of the Trinity and how important the Trinity. The Trinity is that central doctrine to us as Christians, and yet we, it seems so difficult that we don't know what to do with it in our lives sometimes. But he's going to bring it home and say why the under, an understanding of the Trinity is so important to, to our whole life and worldview, how it makes sense of our worldview as Christians and as human beings. So that'll be good. But just as a preview to that, in terms of the inspiration of Scripture, it, like every work of God, is Trinitarian always, every time. God, every work of God is Trinitarian. And so what do we have? We've already looked at part of it, right? God the Father is the speaker. God said, let there be. But then John tells us that Jesus is the word spoken. Right? So the Father says, let there be. And then John says, the word was with God and was God and all things were made through him. That when the father says, let there be, the son goes forth and accomplishes the will of the father. So in terms of scripture, the father is the speaker, the son is the word, and the Holy Spirit is the application of that word. It's the Holy Spirit that is in this word that takes it and then applies it to me. Right? That's why in many of our churches we have a prayer of illumination before we come to the scriptures reading and preaching because we're asking the Spirit, unless you shine this, unless you open this to me, unless you illumine the text for me, I, I'm not going to understand it. The Father speaks, the Son is the Word, the Holy Spirit applies. Or in terms of writing, the Father is the writer, the Son is the written Word, and the Holy Spirit is the interpreter. Right? So God the writer, God the written, God the interpreter is the way that the Trinity is always working when it comes to the scriptures. And the point is then that God is all in all when it comes to the scriptures. It's all of God working together to bring this. So again, inspiration then does not mean motivated. It doesn't mean that the writers were inspired when they wrote, like they were just beaming. They were just on fire that day. That's not what it means. It means that the text is inspired. The writers wrote and the text was filled, inspired with the breath of God, the very word of God that they wrote, but it was the very word of God. The text is inspired, not the writers. Though they may have been motivated and inspired that day, that's not what this means. And the writers therefore may have written and said things that were wrong and not true. But when they wrote this, when they wrote scripture, these texts, we believe, were inspired. That's what Paul is saying. All scripture is breathed by God. It is the very word of God. 
I have there some theories of inspiration. Let me just give you quickly some, I'll give you four ways, and I listed them there, that people think about this idea of inspiration. Like, how do we get the Bible from these writers? Okay, because no one just thinks the book just dropped down from heaven, right? So how did this, what happened there? What just, what happened in the writing of the Bible? The first theory, I'll give you the first two or the two ends of the spectrum. So the first theory is the intuition theory, which basically says the writing of the Bible was all man, no God. The Bible is just human wisdom like any other great human writings, right? It's just, these are geniuses. These guys are really brilliant. They obviously love God and they just wrote, but it's all their work. It's just they wrote of their own intuition and their wisdom. It's real wisdom, but it's all human wisdom and God had no real role in it. And therefore, the text is obviously flawed. It's a great text, but because it's human, it contains errors and, you know, and so the Bible has errors given that system, right? So that'd be, that'd be one on way extreme end. The other extreme end is the dictation theory, which says that every word of God is given by God. And so the writers of scripture are basically secretaries that are told, hey, take a note here, <laughs> you know, and they say, yep. And, then, and they're just typing down what, you know, what the Lord is saying, and they're writing it down, writing it down, and getting, and then they just hand it off. So in that case, in the dictation theory, it's all God and really no man. Man is just an agent. They're just, you know, they're just doing what they're told. And so it's all of God, none of man. This is kind of like the Quran, right? Allah just gives the word to Muhammad, and Muhammad just writes it down. He's just, now he writes his own things called the Hadith, but the, but the Quran is just, I got this directly from Allah, period. And so some think that the Bible is like that. And by the way, there are places in the Bible that are like that. The prophets do not speak of their own. God says, you tell them this. And they come and they tell them that. And they better not add to that. And they better not take away from that. You tell them what I told you. You know, God gave Moses the Ten Commandments and gave him the law. He said, write this down. This is the deal. I'll, forget it. I'll write it down. He writes it right in the stone. And then he says, now you write down the other things. So that, there is some dictation in the Bible. It's not, it's not nearly the majority, but there is some of that in there. But that's not, that's not it. In the middle, then, uh, is thirdly the dynamic view of inspiration, which is one of cooperation. God does part of it. Man does part of it. Both God and man playing a part together. And generally, the way this idea works itself out is that what God did was he gave the writers of Scripture the ideas, the basic content, and then man took that, and the, the human authors took that, and then just put it in their own words, and God let them go. He, he gives them the idea, and then they take it and put it into their own words. And therefore, again, the text contains errors, because in that little bit of transmission from the ideas which are of God to the actual now explanation of the ideas and description of the ideas, something uh, can get lost. It doesn't mean the Bible's riddled with errors, but yeah, there's going to be some here and there. They just get some stuff wrong. Right, some scientific stuff they get wrong, some descriptions they get wrong. We can't quite take it. We got to sift out there what maybe was hyperbole, you know, and that kind of stuff. So in this sense, you're getting the word of God, but it's like getting a treasure in a jar of clay, a broken vessel, you know. The Bible's a broken vessel. It's got a, some errors around the fringes, and, and you got to kind of sift through that to get to the treasure there. So obviously we don't hold to any of these, but rather to the last, and that is the plenary verbal. Um, 
And I would say, so if dynamic was like cooperation, I would say the plenary verbal is what I would call Christological. The way we think about Jesus helps us to understand the way we should think about the scriptures. Because Jesus is the word made flesh. And what we're holding here is the word in written form, right? So Jesus, there's, there's an, there is a, a very tight relationship between the person of Jesus and what we're holding here in the Bible. He is the word. Okay, so, so how I think about Jesus will help me to understand this. Now, how do I think about Jesus? Is he God or man? Is he part God, part man? Is he all man but no God? So God just said, all right, here's a good man. I'll create a good man. That would be like the intuition theory. Here's a good man. Go save people. That's like the Jehovah's Witness theory, right, of, of who Jesus is. He's a good man. He's not God. He's a good man. Now, if I take that over to the Bible, that would be the intuition theory. Okay, the Bible's all man, and it's not God. Okay, or he's really God, and his humanity is not really there. And there was a, there was a heresy called docetism, in the early church, which said that, that his humanity was just a fake. It's, that's God, and God would never really become human, so his humanity is just like a facade, but he's not really human. It's just, he's just doing that so he can appear to us, but he's not really, truly human. And that would be like the dictation theory. It's all God, and it's not really man. Yeah, they wrote it, but it was not really their cooperation at all. Or then we might say, well, maybe, maybe no, 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 he's both. It is God and man, and he's part God and part man. And we go, oh, no, 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 that's a heresy too. No, Jesus is fully God and he is fully man. He is truly human and he is truly God. And the plenary verbal says this with regard to scriptures. The Bible is truly the word of God and it is truly the word of man at the same time. Because God's activities and human activities don't collide. They're not fighting for space. God is not fighting for space with humanity, right? Let's, let's, we're going to talk in the end of this course. One of the last things we talk about will be providence, so let's jump ahead for a minute. But let's just think about this. If I have a headache, and I'm really struggling with a bad headache, and I pop to Excedrin, and my headache goes away, who healed me? Did God heal me, or did the geniuses behind Excedrin, who I love, <laughs> did they heal me? Which one healed me? Both of them, right? Both of them. Both of them did, and both of them did fully. If I ran into the guy who made Excedrin, I, I wouldn't say I'm not thanking him because God healed me. No, but God healed me through this guy, and this guy really, or multiple people, or woman, sorry, women, maybe it was a woman, you're like, hey, I think it was a lady, right? Fine. She did it, and I owe her or him a ton of thanks. But then do I say, oh, oh, you think they mean it? So you're not thanking God. Then don't, why would you pray and thank God for healing you if they did it? Or, or if I need a meal, right? If there's a meal, and, and Christina, Christina makes dinner, and I eat the meal, I'll say, I'm not thanking Christina because God provides, like he does for the sparrow. Right? <laughs> God provided this food, not you. But then I don't say, I don't say, oh, I thank Christina, so I have no thanks for God because I gave all the thanks to Christina because she's the one that made the meal. It doesn't work that way. God and Christina are not fighting for space. God is fully responsible for feeding me, and Christina's fully responsible for feeding me on two different levels. They're not on the same level. 
It's not in, in economics we talk about being a zero-sum game. They're not fighting for space. Like if Christina gets 60% of the thanks, then God can only get 40. It doesn't work that way. Because as the Bible said, in him we live and move and have our being. So we can be fully responsible while God is fully sovereign over that same thing. That's how it works, right? This is a confusion we have with the wills, our will versus God's will, as if, well, if I'm doing it, then God's not. It doesn't work that way, right? So the same thing is true for Scripture. So whose, whose words are these that we're reading? Well, I'm reading Paul's words, and I'm reading God's words at the same time. And the doctrine of inspiration says that as Paul sat down to write 2 Timothy, the Spirit filled it. It's, the, it's breathed from God out through the mind and the will and the pen of the apostle Paul. So that just as Jesus is fully God and fully man, so the scriptures are fully the work of the human writer and fully the work of God. And because it's the work of God, God preserves it then from error. So that Jesus' humanity is real humanity. You say, yeah, but he didn't sin. Well, that doesn't make it not real humanity. Right? Jesus' humanity is real humanity, and he is preserved from sin. He does not sin, but he's really human. And so as the writers pen these things, though they themselves are sinners, and though other things they may have written may be sinful, here God preserves, we believe in this doctrine, God preserves them from error so that as they write, they write the very word of God when God intends it to be written. Okay, so that's the doctrine of inspiration. Plenary verbal just means every word. We don't just believe God gave the ideas. God gave every word. But he didn't do it as, a, as a, 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 somebody might give to a secretary. He gives it instead providentially. He's so prepared, because in his sovereignty, prepared the apostle Paul in all his education, in his family background, his experiences, his circumstances, so that in his gifts and abilities, so that when he sat down to pen that letter to Timothy, it was the word of God every word of it. As Jesus himself says regarding the Old Testament, not one jot or tittle. They're little, they're little marks on, they're not even Hebrew letters, they're little marks on Hebrew's letter, Hebrew letters. And he says, not one of them will pass away until all has been fulfilled. Right? It all matters. Every bit of it is the word of God. So when we're talking about the scripture, we talk about it's the word of God in every bit of it. Uh, D to inerrancy. Inerrancy. Inerrancy means that the Bible is without error. And now I'm going to give two qualifiers here. The Bible is without error in its original. And you see there, um, I have without error in the autographa. The autographa is the fancy word for the original. When Paul actually penned it, okay, is the autographa. The Bible is without error in its original, the autographa, in all that it intends to teach. And I'll tell you why, why, these, why that little qualifier. Okay? All right, first, the Bible is without error. Now, this is a, real, this is a logical extension of our doctrine of inspiration. If we believe that the Bible is breathed by God, then to say, oh, and it contains errors, now it comes back onto the character of God, right? Then God breathes lies. Then God breathes error, right? And if God can't preserve his word from error because Paul started writing, well, then he's not sovereign. If God is sovereign and true, then his word is true. And John 17, 17, 
Jesus is praying in the Garden of Gethsemane, right at that passage we were looking at about, about Father, let them be one as we're one. And he said, his prayer for them is this, Father, sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. Your word is truth. So the Bible is without error. Now, in its original, and this is an important little qualifier because what you're all holding in your hands are copies. And they're copies of copies of copies of copies. Okay? We do not have the autographer. We have copies of the autographer. All right? And so that's important. So that, that little thing leaves that little wiggle room for saying, hey, not that there can't be errors in transmission, not that there can't be copying errors. In fact, there can be. That's why I can say, oh, I have inspiration. Wally, what do you have in the ESV? Oh, what do you have in that? What do you have in that? And there are better translations. The ESV is one of the best. Right? And then you have really bad translations. They're not translations at all. They're paraphrases, like the message, the living Bible. That doesn't mean those are bad. They're just bad translations. Don't view them as trans. They're not translations. They're paraphrases. They're taking the translation and trying to tell you what they think it means. And those can be really great to read. They can be nice and devotional. Just don't mistake them for translations. They're not. The NIV is a paraphrase, but it's unlike the translation end of paraphrases. But it's still a paraphrase. It's not trying to be a literal translation. If you were preaching or really doing some serious Bible study, you would not want to use the NIV. Okay, not that it's horrible or evil. It's just not a real little term. The ESV, the New American Standard Bible, the NASB, are translations that are trying to really be true to the Greek and put it into the English that tries to get as close as possible to saying what the Greek says, even if it com might come across a little clumsy. We're not going to just start doing interpretation for you. We're going to leave you it so that you can pray through and, get the, and work through, try to come through the interpretation. I mean, sometimes all translators have to interpret. That's part of the business. But paraphrases say we're going to do it a lot, and literal translations try to do it less. So we are not dealing with the original. Now, I, I hate to speed over this, but I would just draw your attention to one thing, because sometimes when we hear we don't have the originals and we're dealing with copies, it's like something we know but haven't really thought about. And then it can unsettle you a little bit. Then you say, what, what do you mean I don't have the original? Like, what, am I t what, what if this isn't what was originally written? And I just want to reassure you that what we have here is unbelievably accurate. That those who do the translation have such an unbelievably high level of certainty with regards to this and the original. And just to confirm this to you, I don't know what Bibles you're holding in front of you now, but I would encourage you sometime if you're just sitting around and you know, your pastor's going really long-winded or you're waiting for the, waiting for the service. We, I'm a pastor. So um, look at the footnotes down at the bottom. And what you will see is that in those footnotes, if, you're, if your Bible has footnotes, um, you will see things like some, some manuscripts say. And... What that is, is when the translators translated the Bible, your Bible, Zondervan did the NIV, Nelson did the NAS, right? These publishing companies hired professors, scholars to translate them. So I remember being in seminary and sitting in class, a class on Job, and I had a professor, Elmer Smick, he was, he was God bless him, he, he, I think he died that year. He was very old, but he was on the committee to translate Job. So I'm sitting in a class with Job, and I mean, he's going, 
Now, when we came to this, <laughs> this phrase, I voted this way, but the committee outvoted me. And I'm thinking, what am I, what are we doing? Like, we're talking about the Bible. And he's saying, in this committee, I chose this translation and they shot me down. And, but that's what's going on. There's committees and they're working through, they're looking at the manuscripts and trying to figure out what do we think was in the original. Now, take all our translations and look at them. You will be amazed at how spot on they are, right? There's not chunks left out of one translation and thrown in, big chunks thrown into another one. They're almost identical. I mean, little choices on words are different. But look in the footnotes and you will see things like, this manuscript says this. And if you look at, you go through and look at all of them. Almost all of them are minuscule little, little things. I'm just opened up to one. Let's see, uh, 111. Let's just see what this one is. Uh, the, the New King James says this, to which I was appointed a preacher, an apostle, and teacher of the Gentiles. And this says, the, this manuscript, we're letting you know, the, the translators are saying, we're letting you know that one manuscript does not have of the Gentiles in it. It just says, I was a teacher. Now, there's no deep truth there. They're like, whoa, wait a second. Elsewhere, it says he was a minister to the Gentiles. It's things like that, little phrases. And all they're doing is saying, we're just being honest with you to say there are some manuscripts that have this or that don't have that. Now, what's amazing about the New Testament, and maybe you know if, you've ever, if you follow guys like Josh McDowell, they're great at this kind of stuff, to say if you look at any piece of ancient literature, right, take the works of Aristotle, the the number of early copies we have of anything Aristotle wrote, we have like five copies of one of his books in manuscript form. And the gap between when Aristotle wrote it and the earliest manuscript we have of it is like a thousand years. I think with Aristotle, something like 1,200 years between when he wrote it and the earliest outstanding manuscript we have, and we only have five of them to compare against. So that when you actually go to Barnes & Noble and you bought Aristotle, which you, maybe you're, you're doing, you just buy Aristotle, you're reading something that scholars are trying to figure out what Aristotle said by looking at those five manuscripts, which are 1,200 years after when he actually wrote it, and trying to say, do we think this is what Aristotle wrote? And this is true for almost every piece of ancient literature. Gaps like that and only a little handful of manuscripts. The New Testament has 20,000 manuscripts within 200 years. There is nothing in any piece of ancient literature that even comes close to this. 20,000. Because when the scriptures were written, they were spread and copied and copied. And co so Paul writes a letter to the Thessalonians and the other churches want it so it gets copied and spread here and copied and spread there. And you have such a host of copies that it makes it easy to look and say, here's what we think the original said. You know, we've got 19,900 of them that say this, and we've got 100 of them that say this. They, have very, they can have a very high level of confidence. And so any place there is a question, they footnote it, which I love. Because they're like, hey, we're being honest. There's a question here. Some manuscripts disagree, even if it's overwhelming, and we're letting you know. And if you look in the Greek New Testament... I don't mean to bore you, but I want you to know this for your own confidence. If you look in the Greek New Testament, every one of those footnotes has a letter rating. A, B, C, D. A means there's disagreement, but we are unbelievably confident in the choice that we've made. And D means there's some disagreement, and we're not really sure. And there's not many Ds. 
And where they are, nothing. There's no doctrine. It's not like one text says Jesus rose from the dead and a bunch of others go, he did not rise from the dead. And we're like, oh my goodness, right? These are little tiny phrases. But what I love about our Bibles is they take this seriously. And they say, we're letting you know that there's a manuscript issue here and a manuscript issue there. If you want to see the biggest one, just, just for a second, if you really want to see maybe the largest one, if you look at the end of Mark, I don't know if you've ever noticed this about your Bible, but if you look at the end of Mark, like literally the last page, most of your Bibles, all right, great, the New King James doesn't have it. Um, most of your Bibles will have a line in the last like paragraph on the, on the Gospel of Mark. Do any of you have that? If you open up to the last chapter of Mark, Mark 16, right like the last couple paragraphs, there'll be a line. And right under that line, it'll say, most the earliest and most reliable manuscripts do not contain the following. Right? This is also true in John chapter 8. The very beginning of John chapter 8, the story of the adulterous woman. Now, in those, two, those are the two big chunks. And what your Bibles are saying is, are the earliest and most reliable manuscripts do not have this. What they're saying is we are not sure this is really Bible, what you're about to read. We're going to put it there because traditionally it's been in here, but we're letting you know the most reliable manuscripts never had this. This was a later edition, we think. And so we're just letting you know. Now, what you'll find in that, again, there's nothing in there that is not confirmed somewhere else or the story of the adulterous woman. It's not like there's some doctrine which the whole Bible pivots on. And so it's just saying, hey, we're just letting you know. And there's an example. I, to me, I get great confidence when I see stuff like that because they take the scholarship seriously. So if I was preaching, I'd be careful. I would not want to draw any theological point from either of those passages that I could not defend elsewhere. I, because I would say, I'm not sure I have great reliability in that. So when we say, when we say that the Bible is inerrant in its autographer, that's what we mean. But it's also in Matthew, right? So, so all it's saying is we're not sure it was in Mark's original. It's not saying we don't think the Great Commission ever happened. It's just saying when Mark penned his letter, we think he stopped here. And then later it got added on. And look, there are copy errors. I did this with my apologetics class one time. I said, I said all right, let's take, I said to uh, Wally, you know, I said, Wally, open the Bible anywhere, copy two verses. And, and play telephone with writing. Do it, pass it to Pam, and on we go. By the time we got around the room, right, it was a disaster. I ran it through all five of my classes. It was just, by the end, it was just complete gibberish. It, you wouldn't know anything of what it was. Now, that's because people aren't paying attention. We're writing very sloppy. I mean, when they copied scripture, they were diligent. They knew it was a treasure. They knew it was the word of God. They were very, very careful. But yes, there were copying errors. And any place there is a disagreement, you see it. Our translators and our Bible company said, there it is, and we're letting you know. Okay, so, ha so I just want to say it to you, to have don't lose confidence. Just know that the inerrancy is in the autographer. Now, I, I have, when I read this, I read it as an inerrant text. You understand that? I'm, I'm not saying there's probably errors in here because of the copying, because look at what they are. They're, they're very, very minuscule. So I still treat this as an inerrant text. So it's inerrant in the autographer. It's inerrant, it's without error, second point on your outline, it's without error in all that it intends to teach. And here's what I mean by this. The Bible's not a science textbook. The Bible's not intending to teach us science. 
And we have to be careful because people go, oh, the Bible does have errors. Look at that. It says, with Joshua, the sun stood still. But we know it's not the sun that moves. It's the earth that moves. And so see, the Bible does contain errors. Or Jesus said that the mustard seed is the smallest of all the seeds. And technically it's not. There's a seed smaller. See, the Bible's that. And you go, see, it's that kind of stuff that just you're, you're taking inerrancy to a place it, it's not meant to go. That, Jesus was not saying, I'm giving you all a study on botany now. And is it botany? What, what is it? Botany. And so I'm going to give you a study. Let me tell you about seeds. And here's the smallest one. One that's not yet been discovered is actually the smallest, but I'm going to use the mustard. No, come on. It's just not that the Bible speaks in common language. It speaks in what we call phenomenal, phenomenological language. That is the way things appear. We talk about sunrise, sunset. Right? We don't say, wow, that was a beautiful rotation of the earth tonight. That was just tremendous. But technically, that's what it was. It's not the sun didn't set. The earth rotated. But it just doesn't sound nearly as awesome. So the Bible is inerrant in all that it intends to teach. And it's not intending to teach us science. Now, I'm not saying there's scientific errors. It just means that the Bible's not... For example, you have a place in in Numbers where it says 21,000 people were killed. And then Paul records it in 1 Corinthians 10, and he says 22,000 people died. And you're like, whoa, error. Error. Number says 21,000. Paul says 22,000. Clear contradiction. And you go, yeah, but neither. You think, it was, you think the, uh, Moses, when he wrote numbers, was saying literally 22,000. Like, nope, not 21,999. 21,000 or 22,000. They're both, they're speaking in estimates. And estimates can be true. Right? It's, truth is not always precise. Depends on the purpose of your asking me. If you say to me, hey, how's Chapel Field doing? I said, we're doing all right. I said, how many students you got over this year? I said, oh, we got 100 students. Right? We got 100 students in the high school. And he said, now, what if we have 90? And you find out later there were 90, you're like, Bill, I just can't. <laughs> you're like, I asked you, and you said 100, and it turned out to be 90. I just, I'm shocked. Right? You wouldn't do that. You'd be like, he's rounding. You get that, right? If I said 110, you're like, it wouldn't be. Now, when New York State says, how many students do you have? We go, no, 100. <laughs> Yo, and it's 98. They're bringing officials down to talk to us, right? It's the purpose of why I'm saying it. Am I trying to be precise? Is Paul trying to give us the literal numbers of the people? No. And so you've got to understand, don't, inerrancy can't be a wooden thing, I guess is my point. You've got to, it's, it's, it's true absolutely without error in everything it says in the way it intends it to, to, uh, to teach. Um, okay, I have a little point there about being careful. We get, this is where sometimes we've got to be careful between, I don't think I have it on your thing. Uh, that we do have to be careful between science and scripture. Here's one thing I want to say. General revelation and special revelation will never, ever contradict, ever. Science and Bible may only because we're interpreting one of them wrong. Either I'm getting the science wrong, I'm reading nature wrong, or I'm reading the Bible wrong, but they're both God's revelation and can never contradict. And I have to be careful. I have to ask, which one am I reading? Maybe I'm reading the creation account wrong. But, you know, and literal seven days, 24 hour, maybe that's right. If that's right, then this theory of science is wrong. Or perhaps I'm reading Genesis wrong. But I know there's no contradiction. And so if there's contradiction, I can then think it out. I can relax and try to think it out. Because when Galileo said, you know, I think Copernicus is right. I think the earth orbits the sun. The church said, no way, because the Bible says, the, earth, the Lord set the earth upon its foundations, it shall not be moved. 
and you're saying the earth moves. Can't be. Okay, now, now, either the science is wrong or the interpretation of the Bible is wrong. And in that case, it turned out the interpretation of the Bible is wrong. You read, all right, you read that Psalm wrong. That's not what it means when it says it's been set on its foundations, it can't be moved. So we have to be careful. They'll never contradict, right? They're, they're both God's revelation. Okay, it's the canon of the church. Just quickly, the, it's the canon of the church. I just mean that it is truth, right? So your word is truth. And I guess what I wanted to say about that is the Bible needs to be our canon, our rule. It's what I judge truth by. And I just want to encourage you, as you know, to let the Bible be the standard by which I, the lenses, the glasses through which I look and interpret truth. Not lies that Satan gives to me, because he will give me many, he'll whisper in my ear. So I told you earlier, I sin, I repent. The Bible tells me I'm forgiven. Satan continues to convict me and condemn me. What do I believe? And the point is, I believe the Bible, right? The Bible says homosexuality is a sin. Doesn't mean it can't be forgiven. Doesn't mean it's worse than all other sins. It just says it's a sin. It needs to be repented of. My culture says I'm a hater. And so my inclination is to want to back off. Again, it doesn't mean I shouldn't love homosexuals. That's not the point. But I need to say what the Bible says about it. Not just about that sin, but a whole host of other sins. But my culture's pressing me on this one. And I, very easily, I can let the culture be my standard. And I, I just want to push you back. Romans 3, verse 4. Let God be true and all men be liars. You push me down on it, I'm holding to the scriptures. I'm going to say what the Bible says. Okay, so I can't, I can't say any more about that. E, the authority of the Bible. I'll just leave it at this, that the Bible for the Christian is the final and ultimate authority. Okay, the Bible is the final and ultimate authority by what it says directly and by good and necessary consequence. So the Bible doesn't say anything about abortion. Yeah, but it says things about murder, and I can draw the connection out there. It says life is in the image of God. I can draw the good and necessary link to abortion. It doesn't say anything about pornography, I know, but it says about lust, and it says about adultery, and I can, I can make a good and necessary link there. Okay, so, so Scripture is my authority. Be careful, then. Well, let me leave it at that. Let me jump down finally, because we're late. Well, we're right on. Well, no, we're late. Finally, the sufficiency of Scripture. And here we're back to 2 Timothy 3. All Scripture is God-breathed and is sufficient for all teaching and reproof and all those things that the man or woman of God may be equipped for every good work. And I just want to encourage you, again, to think of the Scriptures as indeed sufficient. And I think of something my buddy Kevin says, who will come with you the next couple weeks. Maybe he'll end up saying it to you. I don't know. But he's challenged me with this. He says, because he's a pastor, and he says, you know, people come to me, and on something he's preaching, and it doesn't seem the most relevant. And he says, they, they say to me, I just didn't get much out of that text. And he says, I've thought about it and want to say back in a respectful way, well, the text did not get much out of you. And that's the point, really, isn't it? Right? It's not that I'm going to just use the text for things. Oh, I didn't get a lot of that. That's, again, why we don't read numbers. I don't get a lot out of that. But Kev's point is, yeah, but the text is to get it out of you. The text is, you don't sit in judgment over the text and go, I don't find that very useful. You're to submit under the text. <laughs> the scriptures are sufficient, whether you think they are or not. All scripture, all scripture is God-breathed and together is sufficient to train you into the man or woman God wants you to be. 
And then we do. And I, the minute he said that, I felt guilty because I've had that feeling before. Right? He's just wrestling through what he knows we think. Right? To say, I didn't get a lot out of that, or I didn't get a lot of that out of that sermon, or these kinds of things. That's not what it's about. It's about what's the text getting out of you? What's it drawing you to do? Are you submitting under the text? So we must submit ourselves to the text and trust God and the power of his inspired, spirit-filled word so that we listen and learn and let the word shape us. Even if I can't see how reading about some of these crazy laws in the book of Leviticus is shaping me, but God's word is power. It's a two-edged sword. Let it cut you. Let it rip you apart and heal you. It's shaping you. You need to be cut. I need to be cut by that two-edged sword, even if I don't know how. And the thing is, if you only read the passages you get a lot out of, then you start letting the scripture be a sounding board. You're, you're, it's just saying back to you what you want it to say to you. You need to be shaped by all the different features of the scriptures, even if you don't get it. It's okay. We want to engage our minds, but let the scriptures do their work on you. The, the word of God, to quote also from First Peter, is life. It endures forever. Get it into you. Right? The flower fades. The, the grass wither, the flower fades. All flesh is like that. It's all going to pass away, but the word of the Lord will endure forever. That's what you want to be eating. That's what I want to be eating. We want to get the word of God into us so we can again be like that tree rooted by streams of living water. The final thing I have there is sola versus solo scriptura. And I won't go on about it only to say what I meant by it is that, and there's a distinction because when we say scripture is sufficient, we can end up thinking, well, if scripture is sufficient, I don't really need the church. And many Christians do this. Me and my Bible. I got my Bible. And that's not what we mean. In the Reformation, the heart of the Reformation, Martin Luther, was the doctrine of sola scriptura. Scripture alone is our final authority. But over generations, that kind of twisted into what we would call solo scriptura, which means the Bible only. And that's not what Luther meant. Luther didn't mean the Bible is my only authority. Forget the church. Luther loved the church. Luther was a pastor. Luther sat around the table and talked theology with his students. Sola Scriptura does not say the Bible's my only authority. It says the Bible's my final authority. We need the church because left to myself, I'll read the scripture in all kinds of crazy ways. And the Holy Spirit works in and through his church to give us guide rails. We need the collective wisdom of the church as the Spirit works in and through us to say, no, that's a bad interpretation of that text. When people just get alone with their Bibles all the time, they get some wacky, wacky stuff. But I want to say, what has the church collective said over the years? doesn't mean they're right. But boy, if the church has been saying this for 2,000 years, and all of a sudden I got a brand new idea no one's ever thought about, I'm going to back it off a little bit. Because I believe in sola scriptura, that is, the Bible's my final authority. But I also need my brothers and sisters, my fathers and mothers in the faith to train. And so what Luther said is, while the church is an authority, if at the end of the day, if at the end of the day I am convinced, and this is the whole Diet of Worms where he stands, if I'm convinced that the Bible teaches something against the tradition, the tradition is, is ignoring or teaching against what I believe in my conscience, the Bible to say, here I stand. I can do no other. God help me. Amen. I mean, that's where he stands. But even then, he's like grueling. At night, he's just praying. He says it was the darkest night of his life, thinking, can I alone be right? Like, he wasn't flipping about it. Like, oh, I understand the Bible. You all don't. And at the Diet of Worms, when the church put him on that inquisition, they said to him, 
that the inquisitor said to him, Luther, do you think it's possible for you then to see something which none of the fathers have seen? All that pressure on Luther. But Luther said, unless you can convince me from the scriptures that I'm wrong, I cannot and I will not or can't. And so the Bible's our final authority. But Luther didn't want to not submit to the church. He just wanted the church to talk to him about the Bible. And so Lutheranism and Reformed churches and all Protestantism, for the most part, have held that the Bible is the final authority, but not the only authority. Okay. Okay, well, thanks for being great and let me stumble over a little bit. And uh, thank you again to Goodwill. And let me close in prayer. And next week we'll be up in the uh, main building. Oh, Heavenly Father, help us to be like trees planted by streams of living water. Help us, O Father, to drink from that living water of your word, which is given and filled with your spirit, breathed out the very word of God, that, Father, we might live by it, for it is sufficient. It's life to us, and it's sufficient to train us up to be the men and women you want us to be, that we can live lives of holiness and obedience and truth. Oh, Father, help us not to neglect this wonderful gift, for we know that so many throughout history have not had the Bible in their language. So many of them have not had the privilege to read it, yet we do. We all have it laying around. Oh, Father, teach us to love your word, and in loving it, love you all the more. Be with us as we go this week. Help us to dwell upon these things until we meet again. Bless Pastor Sherrod as he comes next week to teach on the Trinity, Father. May it be a blessed and rich time, I pray. Bless us as we go now home. Give us safety on the roads. In Christ's name, amen. This has been a production of the Dwark Hill Study Center. All our lectures and classes are available for free streaming or for purchase on CD and download at dwarkhill.org. Please visit our website to receive more information regarding the study center and upcoming events, and to view articles and blogs from our contributors.